chapter 8. You guys got that open? Great. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a background. I'm going to pray, and we'll get to work on the larger passage. Um, Ezra, uh, this will be by way of review for a lot of you that have been sitting here listening to this. You're like, we've heard this story every week. Good. You get to hear it one more time, because I love you. I want you to know the Bible. Um, but for those of you that are new, it's kind of uh, good information for you to catch up to speak. Uh, the children of Israel were living in their land, Israel. At around 500 or so, 500 middle 500s BC, uh, through sin, through judgment, through warning, God told them, if you don't shape up, I'm going to take you out of your land, which is a gift to you, but I'm going to take the land back, and I'm going to send you guys away to a far off distant land. Uh, that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians came in. They took the children of Israel, took them off for 70 years. The children of Israel were in exile in Babylon. And what happened was around 70 years after that, uh, God raised up a leader by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus was a new king throughout Babylon. He issued a new decree that basically made for an allowance for the children of Israel and any other nation to return back to the homelands. And so what had happened, what you're going to see essentially from the beginning of Ezra all the way to the book of Nehemiah, is there are three uh, consecutive uh, returns from exile. The first return from exile was basically chapters 1 through 5 in the book of Ezra. This is under the leadership of a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. And then basically from chapter 6 to the end of the chapter, you see essentially a second return from exile. This is about 60 some odd years after the first return. This is under the leadership of the author of the book. His name is Ezra. And then the third return from exile was under the leadership of a guy by the name of Nehemiah. If you ever read the book, that's the third return from exile. Each one of these guys had a particular passion, a particular goal for calling by God to accomplish. Zerubbabel, his calling, his desire in terms of returning from Babylon into Jerusalem was to essentially rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed. The city walls had been destroyed. And it laid in ruins for 70 years. Basically, uh, it would have been equivalent to if 9-11 was all around the entire country, everything was just laid waste, every type of landmark was destroyed, every church was just completely crumbled to the ground. That's kind of what had happened with, with Israel. It was sort of their own personal 9-11 long ago. And what had happened was these first return of exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel, his intention was to restore and rebuild the actual temple. We've been trying to look at it this way. His basic initial desire is to build a church, to reestablish the worship of God at the center of the people of Israel so that the church, the body of worshipers of the living God, would be reestablished there. Under the leadership of Ezra, his desire was not to rebuild the, the, the temple, because the temple's already built, but was to basically come along and to make sure that the people that are worshiping the temple are walking solid, or are walking strong with God. His desire has to do more so with the people, to make sure that the people are in favor and walking with God. Nehemiah, what does he do? What's his passion? What's his longing? To build a wall. He, he realizes you got a church, you got a building, and you got people that love God and they're serving God, but you're living on top of a mountain, which is where Jerusalem is, and there's no walls to protect you from predators, actual animals, real predators, or even uh, thieves and people that would break in and other types of warring tribes. 
you literally have a nation of people that are vulnerable. So God lays it upon Nehemiah's heart to basically rebuild and restore the walls of Jerusalem that were destroyed so that the city or the church within the city can be strong. Because as, as long as the church within the city was strong, so therefore the city itself would be strong. So Nehemiah has this great vision. So that's kind of where the, the whole passage, the whole context is. We jump into now about chapter 8. Ezra comes on the scene. As, he, as you've noticed over the past few weeks when we've been looking at this, Ezra, even though he's the author of the book, doesn't show up until around chapter uh, 7. Finally, he's on the scene. We looked at him last week. And now we're kind of moving more so into what Ezra is doing, what his passion is, what God has laid upon his heart to do. And what happened in chapter 7, Ezra has this desire to go back from Babylon, which is where he's been living, to return with the other exiles into the city of Jerusalem. And realizes he's got to have a group of people to do this in. So in reality, chapter 8 is really all about this journey in which God is calling them on. As well, once you get to around chapter 8, verse 21, Nehemiah actually prays to God and asks God to bless this journey. All right, so that's what's going to happen. What you're going to see in terms of kind of coming out of this journey in chapter 8, you're going to see several elements in which this journey uh, involves or what it's all about, uh, some of the aspects of it. So the first one that we'll take a look at, verses 1 through 20, which actually we're not going to look at this week. We'll look at this in two weeks. Is that this journey really involves working with people? People are involved in this. Every type of journey, uh, uh, work of God, are always going to involve people. Secondly, it's going to be about verses 21 to 23. You're going to see really this real radical dependence that Ezra and the people that are accompanying him uh, have upon God. They really cast themselves upon God, realize that in order for us to make this journey, in order for us to be successful in our goals, we need God's help. So they are very dependent upon God. We'll see that. Uh, thirdly, we see about verses 24 to 34, kind of a larger passage there, is this responsibility to take care of the treasures that God gives. We'll look at that in just a moment, but basically they're given a lot of money, probably in the millions of dollars. That they're literally transporting 900 miles across the desert. All right? You can imagine, there's like tribes in the middle of the desert that take travelers, they're hungry. I mean, they live out in the desert, all right? There's nothing to eat out there. And so when you see a big band of travelers, they're, they're like the same people in Star Wars, all right? They're like travelers. And that's where these people are. I mean, what's happening here is they're traveling across, traveling across the wilderness to get into Jerusalem with millions and millions of dollars that doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. So they've got to be responsible with it. They've got to take good care of this. Uh, the next thing we see is, uh, you've got to kind of read into the text this, but we'll, we'll look at that in just a moment. I'll tell you why I'm doing that in a second. But um, they're rejoicing. They rejoice in the fact that God has sustained them. The last thing we'll take a look at is uh, part of this journey also involves this worshiping God. Really, this is the climax. This is what it's all about. They get to Jerusalem and they worship God. So the first thing we're going to take a look at today is really this concept of dependence upon God. As I mentioned, we'll get back in two weeks what it means to sort of uh, have the people alongside. But right now, I want to take a look at this whole concept of depending upon God for this trip. Verse 21 says this, Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river Ahava. Now, he assembled his people at this time, and they gathered together around this river called Ahava. Scholars have no idea where this river's at, probably somewhere in Babylon. 
probably for likely reasons, rivers shift, right? I mean, you got one big massive storm over one win- winter, a couple winters, rivers shift. We don't really know exactly where all of us are, but you know, they're, they're meeting there, hanging out for three days, and have a little kind of a camp out, and he assembles all these people. And this says that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, for our children, and for our goods. This is amazing to me that they are literally leading this caravan of hundreds, few thousand people across the wilderness, across the desert. They got kids, grandma, grandpa's there, a lot of frail people, a lot of uh, a lot of dangers, and yet they realize we need God. We absolutely need God. So we're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to humble ourselves before God. Verse twenty-two says this: For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on our way, since we had told the king. The hand of our God is for good on those who seek Him, and the power of His wrath is against all those who forsake Him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened to our entreaty. Kind of vision, uh, maybe a little bit of a scenario as to what happened. Right? I'm kind of a uh, pictorial person. I, I think in pictures, images, like that. I just picture Ezra hanging out with the king. All right, he knows the king. For some reason, God raises Ezra up to the status where he's friends with the king of Persia, all right? And uh, he's in dialogue with the king of Persia. He's like, hey, you know, you guys are going to make a travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's dangerous out there. You want a military escort? And Ezra's like, you know what? God's with us. He fights our battles. He's a big God. He doesn't wear any armor. He doesn't know any karate. And he's very strong. He can destroy and defend himself. No, thank you. So I can imagine a little bit later, maybe he goes back to his room and is like, what? what am I thinking? What am I thinking? I just turned down an army. I mean, that they would have helped us. They would have been sufficient to make sure that as we travel 900 miles, I got my kids with me, other people have got their kids, grandma's with me. We could die. I mean, this is like serious stuff. And he's all of a sudden realizing, I just, I just kind of put my foot in my mouth by telling the kids, we don't need an army, and that God's powerful enough to protect us. Now, was he wrong in doing that? No, because God ends up protecting us. What I find kind of interesting is when you jump forward, like in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is kind of in a very similar circumstance where Nehemiah is friends with the king, and Nehemiah travels from Babylon to Persia all the way to Jerusalem. But what's interesting is Nehemiah actually takes the army as it does the interesting thing that I find about this is they're both doing it based on conscience. Okay? This is what I mean. Ezra, his mentality, God's with us. He'll fight for us. We don't need an army. I'm sure he had second thoughts about that, but he's still sticking to his guns. Nehemiah is like, oh, army, I'll take it. Take everything you got. Right? Everything. Give me every ninja. We'll fight. We need it. We'll take everything you got. Both of them are doing this based on conscience. I mean, there's no scripture in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not take a foreign army. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's the reality is that sometimes people are like, The Bible is the roadbook to your life. Really, a lot of ways, it's kind of not that great of a roadbook. Right? It never told me who I'm supposed to marry. It doesn't tell me how many kids I'm supposed to have. The whole idea is that it points us in a direction that's Godward. We're to follow that. We're, we're to make decisions. As they line up with the Bible, that doesn't mean that we're asking questions like, does the Bible say we should have an army? 
the Bible just simply says, if you have an army, don't make that your boast. Don't trust the horses. Don't trust the chariots. Trust in God. This is people that are really an army. You know, I don't need a doctor. God will heal me. But you know what? Sometimes God actually uses doctors to heal you. I mean, the point is, don't go weird, nutjob, fanatical, thinking that you're a martyr. Okay? The reality is, is we have to make decisions based upon the Word, but then are also according to conscience. So if somebody feels the desire to have an army, and not somebody else has the desire to not have an army, is one wrong, the other right? And I said it. They're both operating according to conscience. That's an important thing to realize, because you don't see Ezra, like, writing in his journals, and Nehemiah, this guy's a loser. Loser. Doesn't know how to trust God. Right? Nehemiah is, you know, not, you know, attacking Ezra for being super spiritual, you know, and that guy thinks he's all spiritual. They're not. They're just operating according to conscience. Christians, we need to learn sometimes. Sometimes we're not too good at this. Sometimes we have this desire in our heart, like, i got to do this. We're so critical of everybody else who's not on the same bandwagon. Right? It's okay. We can calm down. We can take a couple breaths and just realize we are, to, we are called to live according to the Bible and conscience. And make sure that things that we do are not in contradiction to the Bible. Where the Bible doesn't speak explicitly about it, then we act according to conscience as it is sort of under the banner or not contradictory to God's word. That's what I see that happens there. But again, nonetheless, he realizes we need help. We need help. Because if we're just going to go across the desert without anything, we're dead. So he needs to pray. When he fasts, he fasts and he prays. The word fast is the Hebrew word son. T-S-O-N. Son. The word is used a lot in the Bible. And oftentimes it really refers to what happens when people get, the majority of the time the word fasting appears is it's sort of a, it's a response to God that's oftentimes birthed out of real intense pain, hardship of life, something really tragic happens, maybe you lose a loved one, you're really sad, you're burdened, and oftentimes that would lead somebody into a period of fasting and prayer they, where they would anoint their head with uh, acid. Um, and they would put on what's called sackcloth, which is kind of equivalent to like a, wearing like a coffee sack, you know, like coffee beans, coming these big old sacks. Can you imagine making that into a nice little robe, sitting around the house and that thing? That's uncomfortable. Well, that's the whole idea. It was to afflict your body, to make your body feel really just uncomfortable. It was a means of reminding yourself of how afflicted your soul is, how horrifyingly afflicted your soul is at that moment. And you would pray to God. You would fast. Oftentimes, fast would be, um, you know, where you would abstain from food or drink. There are also other types of fasts, like Daniel. He would abstain from just simply meat uh, for a season. I don't think he was straight vegan. He was a spirit-filled man. He loved meat. And so what had happened was he avoided meat for a season because he realized, oh, this is the king's meat. And he abstained from this. I'm going to just eat vegetables and nuts and and whatnot for a period of time, and it was, it was considered a fast. I think the whole idea behind fasting is really this concept of being able to uh, deprive ourselves from certain luxuries or certain things that we enjoy on a day-to-day basis 
so that we can be reminded of our dependence upon God. And that's what Nehemiah, or that's what Ezra's doing. Nehemiah also does the exact same thing. Um, but we see oftentimes in terms of duration, sometimes fast would vary. Sometimes it's sort of a traditional fast would be from like sun up to sun down. Um, you know, just throughout the day, that was kind of like a whole day. Um, or sometimes, depending upon the period of time, Moses fasted and prayed for 40 days, 40 nights. Jesus also did a very similar type of a fast where he went out in the wilderness. Uh, King David, when he had, uh, when his wife, Bathsheba, had given birth to the firstborn son, his son was uh, very sick, David fasted and he was praying that God would heal his son, and his son ended up dying. So the other thing I, I think is important to note, fasting is not magic, right? It's not magic. But we don't fast for some sort of means to be like, fasting is like the means to spiritual power. You know, in some ways, it, it is, but it isn't. I mean, Jesus would say something like this, you know, you guys aren't casting a demon out because this type needs fasting and prayer. But if we think of fasting as a means of like, if I fast, now God's obligated to do for me anything that I've asked Him to do because I've done for Him this special, unique, you know, afflicting of my body, therefore God owes it to me. So there is sort of a, and it's not always a sure, guaranteed type thing. It's like I said, David fasts and his son still dies. But what we see here in the text is that they're fasting because they realize we need God. We are utterly dependent upon God. The next thing that he goes on to say is, says, I proclaim the fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God. Uh, the word humble me is the Hebrew word anah, which literally means to, really the idea of humble yourself is to see yourself in the true light of who you are. The assumption is that most of us don't see ourselves in the true light. That's the assumption. We most of we don't see ourselves in the light of really who we truly are. That's the problem. We oftentimes see ourselves as actually being better than other people. I mean, that's why we're critical of people. That's why we put other people down. That's why when we see people doing things or saying things that just aren't necessarily part of our own routine, we tend to be very critical. Like, how think of them? Like, how they dress, right? Uh, and look at you know look at the kind of car they drive, and the assumption is that I've got a better car, or I've got better taste for clothes, or I got a better hairdo, or I got a better house, or I have a better life. I'm a better person, so we tend to become sort of uh, judgmental in terms of the morality of another person. But humility, or when we humble ourselves, really what it is is you're actually seeing yourself in light of how God really sees you. Uh, one of the verses that I think really uh, significant to point out is actually in Exodus chapter 10, verse 3, um, when God is basically confronting through Moses, Pharaoh, this guy Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's a world leader. Uh, I think most world leaders are pretty much renowned for thinking they're great. I think that's one of the job traits, right? Right? I, I think it's like on your resume, you have to like think you're great. That's just part of the way it works. So here's Pharaoh. He thinks he's great. Pharaoh actually thinks he rules the world. This is the, the delusion that Pharaoh lives under. So what happens when God brings Moses to Pharaoh, chapter 10 of Exodus, verse 3, says this, God says to him, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? So the message that's basically poised 
at Pharaoh is how long are you going to actually think that you rule everything? How long is it going to take? How long is it going to be? How long are you going to continue living your life actually thinking that you have rulership and ownership over everything? That's the question that all of us have to really answer to some degree, guys. Is that that's where we find ourselves in. We have the tendency to think about ourselves greater than we really are. And we look at ourselves through our own bias, through our own eyes, and we live under this delusion that I actually control my life. I control my realm. I control everything around me. And there's like different degrees of this. Because sometimes we can look at a guy, you know, who's running multi-billion dollar Ponzi schemes and think, oh, he's the loser. But the reality is it goes all the way down to the bottom of the totem pole to plankton where we just tend to think that we have control over everything. It shows itself in a, in a household. Let's say we're a man and, you know, he's married to a woman, he's got say, three kids. And he actually thinks He's the owner, the ruler of that household. Therefore, he feels he has the right to just dictate to his wife or to shout at his kids or to treat the family or other people with disrespect because he lives under this delusion. He's in charge. Everybody's a servant. That is fair. And the way to counteract that, the way to change that, the way to break that, is do it really get a proper understanding is to be for God. I'm nothing great. I don't rule anything. I don't have dominion properly over anything. I don't exercise my authority the way that I should oftentimes. But in reality, God is the covering over me. God rules. God reigns. God has the authority, the sole authority over all things. God is the Word meaning he is king over all things. So when you humble yourself, you're basically bringing yourself into that, that, that realization, that alignment that God The opposite of that is you just live in hell. You live in Christ. You live in a sense whereby we are the center of our minds. We think we have control. But the reality is, all of that changes in an instant. Yeah. Some of you guys should watch the news. You know, that guy with face just gnarled from that monkey. The way that I don't know what that's You know what I'm talking about? I'm just shocked by that. Here's this gal, I'm friends with this gay lady. She was walking in the house, and all of a sudden, in an instant, her life is radically changed. She had no control over it. She walks in the house, just thinking, just probably doing what she normally does. One day she wakes up, the next day she wakes up. She doesn't even know. I've heard, like, she's not even completely aware of what's happening. She's sitting here, her nose is bit off, her lips are bit off, her eyelids are ripped off. She doesn't see out of one of her eyes. They think she might have brain damage. Her face is just absolutely destroyed. No control of that. That's a very graphic picture, but the reality is all that can happen to us in an instant. Alright? We just don't have as much control over our lives as we think we do. Something can happen in an instant. We realize we just have control. 
a better way to do it is to do it as it is. Just humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. So what James says is humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. He'll lift you up. See, the way that we naturally think is I've got to take care of myself. I've got to take care of everything. I've got to promote myself. I've got to push myself forward. And the way to break that is James says, just humble yourself before God. He'll take care of He'll take care of What happens next is we see sort of this responsibility for God's treasures in verse 24. Uh, we see that these guys are given lots of money, large sums of money. It says, and then I went apart, or then I set apart 12 of the leading priests. So again, part of the leadership, or part of the group of people that he's doing this uh, journey with. Uh, it's got Sherebiah and Hashabiah in verse 24. And ten of his kinsmen with him. And then I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels and the offering and the house of our God and kings and counselors and his lords that all Israel there uh, present uh, present had offered. I weighed out into the camp 650 talents of silver, silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold, 100 derricks, uh, two vessels, bright bronze, as precious gold, as I said to them, uh, you are holy unto the Lord. The vessels are holy in the silver and the gold and the free will offering to the, to the God of your fathers. Just guard them, this point out. This is his commission. Guard them. There's a million bucks. Guard them. Guard them with your life. Don't let any fall out of your pocketbook. Don't let any fall to the ground. Don't let anybody come and steal it from you. Just guard it. you got millions of dollars at your care. How would you feel if someone came up and just gives you millions of dollars? Like, take care of it. If you do, you're dead. You're like, what? I don't want that responsibility. 29. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the Father's house in Israel and Jerusalem within the chamber of the house of the Lord. So the priests, the Levites, took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels and brought them to Jerusalem, the house of our God. Verse 31, then they departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God, I love this little passage, Ezra writes, he's a guy, I'll tell you what. He says, the hand of our God was, was on us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy from ambushes on the way. You know, don't you read that? You're like, I want more. Like, what happened? You describe an ambush. What, what type of ambush? I mean, were they ninja? What came down and talked to guys? What happened? You know, like, what? What, did they fight? Was there bloodshed? Did anybody die? Like, what, what happened in this ambush? He breaks like a typical guy. You know, ambush. You know, I think a wife asked the husband, like, what did you do today? Uh-huh. I mean, women are total opposite. You ask them a question, you get a very, very long description of their day. Oftentimes more than what's necessary. But as is writing under the hand of God, he's just like, listen, Here's what happened. Ambush. God protected. Period. That's about it. That's about it. God was with them. This is the fourteenth day, verse thirty-three, and the fourth I'm sorry, the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold, the vessels weighed out in the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him Eliezer, the son of Phineas, and with him the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. So what happens is these, find, these guys finally make it to home base. They deliver their goods. Everything's pounded for. They're fine. But what I want you to see with regard to this, uh, this journey was they had sort of this responsibility along the way. And life, in a lot of ways, is about responsibility. I, I'm, just, I'm not talking just like 
Christian journey or spiritual journey. I'm talking life in general. It's about responsibility. I mean, if we live life as an island, our really our main responsibility is ourselves. Right? We just take care of ourselves. We think about ourselves. We 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 think in terms of what is best in terms of my interests. But the moment you enter into community, the moment where you get married, you have a kid, you get a job, whatever, you graduate from school, you, you just realize life takes on this whole new level of responsibility. And really, the way that the Bible communicates this concept of responsibility is not in the sense of like this heavy, like, bummer, I hate being responsible, I don't want to have to do this, I just want to fend for myself mentality, but it's that there's, with the responsibility comes blessings. That's what we have to understand. With the responsibilities come this massive amount of blessings, or curse. I'll give you the prime example. Marriage. Okay? Marriage. Marriage is either, it's a, it's a responsibility. It's an absolute responsibility, right? You've got to be responsible. There's responsibility to relationships, to communicate. You've got to talk with each other. You've got to be able to know how to, how to live with each other, how to bring two different lives together and get along, love one another. I mean, if you get kids, it's a whole other layer that you added onto that. And what happens is that there is responsibility that's a part of that. Now, within that responsibility is either A, an unbelievable blessing. I mean, you got companionship, sex. You got friendship. You got a lot of good stuff. A lot of stuff that is a part of that beautiful relationship of marriage. It's a responsibility. But if you're not responsible, if you don't live responsibly with that, to that person, you end up destroying it. And that's what happens. Life is about being responsible with what God gives us. One of the greatest things that every single one of us have been given by God, every one of us, love. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. If you have a fault, if you can fog a mirror, it's because God has been very gracious to you. He gave you life. The real issue is how do we deal with that? If it is a gift from the Almighty Creator, God, how do we treat that as a gift and give it back in such a way to giving thanks to God, our Creator. There will come a day where we will stand before the God who has given us all of these good things, whether we recognize them or not, and I think we'll give it a count. What do we do with life? What do we do with our spouses? How do we deal with our kids? How do we deal with our money? How do we treat our goods? How do we live with our goods? How do we treat the earth? Earth is also a gift from God. Christians should actually care about the planet we live on. It's a gift from God to be treated properly. The point is, is that this journey really does involve a lot of responsibility. Very clearly seen and pronounced in the past year. These guys are giving millions of dollars. It wasn't there to go out and spend and buy property along the way, somewhere between the Mediterranean and Babylon. It was to get it into the city of Jerusalem, into the temple. The same is true for us. Everything we have is a gift from God. We've got to give it back at some point. How will we give an account to the way we use it? Third thing is this. I see part of the journey is just rejoicing. Again, I mentioned this is not in the text anywhere. And uh, 
I'm going to throw that in here because I think it's no doubt there. Read between the lines a little bit. You can imagine, here they are in the middle of an ambush, in the middle of the wilderness. Some guy's got like a wallet full of $500 million. You get patted down by all these like tribal freaks and they're like, you have money. No, we don't, we don't, we don't, just leave us. You know, they're feeling around for money. They don't feel any money. They leave that one guy like, you didn't get me. And they end up leaving all of together. Now you just got the group of exiles returning. Can you imagine them just being like, oh my God, we're safe, we're alive. That one dollar was taken. I mean, this is amazing. God is with us. I mean, you, read, you get the sense that these guys were full of joy that God has been protecting along the way. Uh, the fourth thing that I noticed is, is this is this worship. Verse 35 and 36, the very first thing they do when they get back, it says, and at the time, verse 35, that they had come back from the captivity, the return exiles offered for offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls, rams, 96 rams, 77 lambs, as a sin offering, male goats, and all this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commission to the, to the king's satraps and to the governors, the province beyond the river, and they aided the people into the house of God. So what happens, the very first thing they do when they get back to Jerusalem, they offer these, uh, these offerings, these sacrifices of worship to God. A burnt offering really was uh, a means of worshiping God. It's a way of saying, I'm going to dedicate myself to God. So these guys worship God. You might say, well, now, is that an obvious part of like, the journey, right? walking with God? Yeah, it's obvious, but unfortunately what happens a lot of times, it's one of the things that oftentimes gets overlooked or forsaken. What I mean by that, I talk to people all the time that have either been Christians for a long time. You know one of the biggest problems in, in American churches today? Is there's pastors that are just constantly being turned over, being burned out constantly. One of the biggest things that they're asked, you know, in terms of why, why are you burning out? Let's you know, try to diagnose what's going on with your life. And they're asked questions like, you know, how often do you read your Bible? Just enjoy God. How often do you worship? How often do you pray? Just meet with Jesus. Most of these guys aren't even doing that. It's the thought of like sitting down and worshiping God, loving God. Now, they might be studying the Bible to prepare a Bible study. But when it comes to like actually worshiping God, loving God, devoting themselves to God, it's like absolutely. So, yeah, worship should be obvious, but oftentimes it's not. And I think what happens is it's sort of in its place is people just do stuff. I mean, they get busy. They just do stuff. They're looking for something to just put their name to and just be busy. But at the end of the day, I mean, really what God wants is worshipers. He doesn't want just want busy work. I mean, God can snap his finger and make something. He doesn't need us to do it. He chooses to use us to do it. But at the end of the day, we have this mentality where it's just like, if I don't help, everything's going to fall in the universe. You know, news for you, God doesn't really need you. I mean, he might take delight in using you, but if you miss the main point of it, that God just wants fellowship with you. He wants your worship. He wants your fellowship. That's the heart of God. So these guys basically get to the point and they offer these sacrifices and they're like, we've got to keep the cross through the blood, recognize the sense of worshiping God central in everything that we do. That's just an important thing to keep into our, in our mind and our understanding. Really, as I kind of wrap this up, what I want for us to see in terms of this whole chapter is this whole concept is really about journey. It's about Ezra's journey from Jerusalem 
from Babylon back into the city of Jerusalem. It's part of this whole work of God that lays this task upon his heart. He's a faithful servant, loves God, is committed to God's word, and he just realizes, I- I'm going to take a bunch of people, we're going to go back into Jerusalem, we're going to build up the people, we're going to help make sure that this church is strong and healthy, and people in Jerusalem love God as much as people here in the palace around my life love God. I just want to pass on the love that I have for God to other people, see people brought into this relationship with God, to find enjoyment with God. So really the whole chapter is about this concept of journey. God moving through this concept of journey. But what I find really is just interesting about this word journey, uh, this, this word, as I was studying this, appears over 700 times throughout the Bible. And as I was studying this, kind of looking at this, I was blown away at how this word works. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want you to just kind of catch a little bit of the flavor of this. The word journey, as I mentioned, it appears on 700 times plus. But the majority of times it appears, it doesn't always appear in the English as journey. It might appear as like, the, uh, like a path or a way, like a path or, or a direction or walking. It, it really has all sorts of different words that are attached to it. It definitely promotes the concept of the idea of movement or direction, going one particular way. And I, and I want you to see how this sort of plays out in the Bible. Because, with, again, what Ezra say. He said, we're on a journey. We're on a journey. We're leaving Babylon. We're on a journey to Jerusalem. We're going through wilderness. We're going through the desert. We're going to get to the place where God wants us to be. We are on a journey. The very first time this particular word uh, appears in the Bible, it's actually the Hebrew word, direct. It appears in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 24. But check this out. Here's what's happening. God creates mankind. It basically creates them not to be a part of a journey, but maybe more specifically an adventure, right? God creates them and says, listen, here's the universe, here's all sorts of amazing animals, here's all sorts of things to discover, uh, I want you to name animals, here's a bride, here's a wife, enjoy her, have a lot of kids, enjoy me, love me, fill this whole earth. Be a good gardener, fill the earth. I will bless you. You will walk with me. I will bless you. You will find fulfillment and joy in me. You'll be able to eat from the tree of life. And you will live forever. In other words, it's like this adventure. Mankind was created to enjoy God daily, experiencing His his beauty. And what has happened was man sins. Man makes a decision, rather than following God, he makes a decision to turn away from God. So here's the way this plays out. In Genesis chapter 3, it says this. Um, man sins, God takes him out of the garden. And here's the verse. He drove them, he drove out the man in the, in, at the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way from the tree of life. The word the way from the tree of life is the same word, direct. It, it means the path, the journey. So here's what God's saying. Because you sinned, because you've chosen the wrong path, I will not allow you to go to the tree of life. You will not have access to that. That path will be closed off to you. But see, here's what's happened. Mankind, ever since the garden, has still had sort of traces of Eden in him. He still has had traces of what's right and what's wrong to some degree. 
And even though, even though there's some senses of where we can be good and we can do good things, at the heart of who we are, we want what? We, we know that life is just beyond us. You understand what I'm talking about? That's how we live. We live as if life is a couple steps ahead of us, or a couple steps to the right or to the left. That's the way we live. We live as if life is not here, now, in us, being supplied from God. We actually live as if life is just a few steps beyond us. I get my degree, and then I will have a good job, I will have a good house, a life. It's it, it, depending on what type of social scale we come from, or what type of uh, nature or nurture, or whatever types of things that shape us and form us. But all of us, it's consistent to say, we all think that life is just a little bit beyond us. Really, we're just playing out this world that Eden has been born for us, and that that way has been broken, secure. And we can't get there, but we want to get there. We want something. We want life. We know it's out there. We know that there's something there that will satisfy us, that will bring us life, but we can't seem to place our fingers upon it. Like Solomon said, it's like grasping at the wind, right? Trying to catch a little bit of wind in your fingers, and you can't. It's impossible. That's what's happening here. Take a look at this. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 12, the second time this uh, word appears, it says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All the flesh had corrupted their way. The word way, again, same word, they're up. They've corrupted their path. The journey of all of mankind has been corrupted. It's been broken. It's been marred. It's as if this harmony which God created all things, everything which at the beginning was in sort of this rhythm with God, with the Creator, with all of creation, now, somewhere along the line, there's a brand new drum beat that's playing. It's clashing, constantly clashing. It's corrupting everything. We're just, just corrupted. Everything is corrupted. Our way is corrupted. The whole Bible, really, the whole Bible is really a story of journey, right? Give me a couple of examples. Abraham, he's in Babylon. This is long before the story in Ezra. Abraham's in Babylon. God calls him. says, Abraham, I'm calling you on a journey. In Babylon, go to Canaan. I'll be your dog. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. I'll provide for you all the way along the way. Uh, you fast forward a little bit to the time of Moses. What happens? You see the life of Moses. He's living out in Egypt. God comes to Moses. Says, Moses, you're in Egypt. You're in bondage. I want you to leave Egypt, and I will take you to the wilderness, and I will bring you to Canaan. I will lead you. I will be the path. I will lead the way. You see this time and time again. You also see this with Jesus. This is what the Bible talks about when we celebrate Jesus coming into the world. Unto us, a child is uh, born. Unto us, a son is given. So we can understand born because we have all been born. But when you start talking about a son given, what are you talking about? How can you give something, Jesus, to humanity unless he's always been? That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus has always been, and he's a gift from God. 
He comes into this world on a mission, on a journey, to seek and save those who are lost, who have lost their way, who have corrupted the path in which they've been upon. That's the purpose. Give me another example. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about a guy by the name of um, John the Baptist, prophesizing. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, it says, All we like sheep, we've gone astray, Any, every one of us has turned our own way. Our own way. We've all gone this, this way that we think is right. We're like sheep, but we've just gone our own path. We've gone our own path, our own way, thinking it's the right way. But God says, you've all gone astray. That's not the way that I want to. And then there's this little passage in Isaiah chapter 40. It says, in a voice cry in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to take people that are on the wrong path, the wrong way, and he will save them. He will rescue them. Jesus comes into this world on a rescue mission. That's what Jesus is here to do. It's a rescue mission. I mean, yes, you can glean and learn a lot about, you know, love from Jesus. And all of these things are examples that the New Testament writers pick up on. But by and large, at the very heart of Jesus, is a mission, a journey. He takes people that have been on a path, going the wrong direction, and he saves them. Let me give you another verse. Like, if you guys want, why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. I think one of the greatest verses. Actually, we just read that about we being like sheep. Turn to Isaiah chapter 30 backwards, sorry. Isaiah chapter 30. He says this about verse 9. He says, They are a rebellious people. God's writing, uh, speaking to Isaiah's prophet, who's in turn going to be speaking to the people of Israel. And here's what he says. He says, they're a rebellious people. They're lying children. He likes them to feel like little kids. You got little kids, you know that why, right? Little kids. Little, you know, here's a little kid. You're, you're not married, you're not kids. Um, I got two. Sometimes, my kids by and large are good kids, all right? But sometimes I actually think they know more, what's more right than me. They, they know what's better. They think they actually know what's better than I do. And sometimes I have to sit down with them and look them in the eye and say, listen, I'm your dad, right? You know? I love you, right? Yeah. You think dad knows a little bit better for you because he's been around a little bit longer? Yeah. Okay, then he likes this to me. This is about relationship. It's not about me being a dictator and telling you and making demands just to make your life miserable. This is about a bond that's called trust. You love me and I love you. And I want to trust you. Good stuff. Good luck. Go clean your bedroom and put it in. Alright? And here's what I say. They're like rebellious little children. They're unwilling to hear instruction from the Lord. Verse 10. He says, Who say to the seers, Don't see to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. This is what these guys are saying. They're like, listen, we want to tell evangelists. That's what we want. We want somebody who's not going to tell us the truth. We just want somebody who's going to make us feel good about ourselves, who's going to give us a mega church, and make us feel really happy about ourselves. We don't want real prophets who are going to speak the real words of God. Just tickle our ears. Then he goes on and says in verse 11, he says, leave the way, 
put aside from the past and let us care no more about the God of Israel. It was the way there. Verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise the word and you trust in oppression and the perversiveness and you rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out, about to collapse, whose breaking suddenly comes in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potted vessel, and it smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the earth or to dip its water out of the cistern. Here's what God is saying. There are people that I have created that I've asked them to follow me, and they say, no, I don't want to follow you. And they're so in this mentality of, I don't want your way. God says, you are on a path that will lead you to a place that's not too much unlike somebody taking a piece of pottery and smashing it on the floor. You have a million pieces. Is that not descriptive of so many people's lives in this world today?
And when we don't live like that, when we say no to God, when we turn our backs on Him, and we go in a way that we think is better, better than God's, we end up becoming like that piece of pottery that smashed and destroyed into a million fragmented pieces, and yet God still comes and says, hey, return to me. Return to me. Here's one last verse. Finish here. Isaiah 6 says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked, so speaking to people who live in this wicked state, so let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. For out of God, he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This picture I get in my mind as being a dad is God standing down, speaking to his children, saying, Listen, you don't understand life the way I did it. You just don't. I'm serious. I've seen it all. I've lived it I know it brings damnation to your soul. I know it destroys your life. I know it completely humiliates you. I know it defiles the soul. God's saying, I have a path that will lead you away from that and actually lead you into life. That's, that's the heart of God. It's like a father speaking to an estranged child. Take this heart. What else? Last verse I'm going to read. We have a worship team come on up. We're going to just finish on this. Love this. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Says this, it's kind of talking about a future time, I think, when Jesus is going to come back again, rule and reign as king. But I think even before that, sort of speaks of the cross. I bring this up because this is the word way or journey is, is tucked in this verse as well. It says this He who comes from Eden is crimson garments from Vajra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Is I speaking righteousness, and I'm mighty to say. And he says, Why is your apparel, why are your garments red? Why are your garments like this? It says, as if he who treads the winepress, the word tread, by the way, is the word tereth, or journey. It says, Your garments are all red. It looks as if you walk through a whole winepress. And he goes on in verse 31, it says, I have trodden the winepress alone. Here's what Jesus is saying. Judgment will come. This journey, which I take, I will take alone. The journey that I will take will be to wash away your offense, to remove your defilement, to take away everything that you have done that is in complete contradiction to the nature of God. I will wipe that away. The beginning of Isaiah says, Come, let's reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. This is the part of God speaking, saying, just come back to me, and we'll make it all right. Jesus says, my journey is to make it right. Guys, this is, this is why, as a church, we're really about Jesus. We're not about religion. We're not about trying to look right. We're a bunch of pretty messed up people here, okay? We really are. Reality is what it is that Jesus has come to save us, changed us, washed us, cleansed us, made us right. We have 
nothing close except in Christ. So what I want to do right now is we're going to, we're going to worship and respond to the Lord in some song and prayer. Uh, if you're here and you want to have someone pray for you, there'll be some people off on the side. We'll have to do that. We'll also respond by taking um, communion this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to not take the communion. Communion really speaks of a relationship between a believer and God. I encourage you, if you don't know Christ, you want to come to know Christ, you want to have your sins forgiven, just all you got to do is call upon God. Ask Him to cleanse you. Ask Him to wash you, to forgive you of your sin. The read verses basically this. That's what repentance is. I'm going this way, and God says that way leads to death. We hear His voice, we stop, and we walk the direction He says for us to go. That's what repentance is. Some of us need to repent. Some of us need to turn from our sin, call upon God's name. The Bible says He's mighty to save. That's our God. He's like a father that just wants to make things right in a broken relationship. I'm going to pray. We'll give our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, keep money. We want you to know Jesus. If you're here, love this church, want to be a part of it, want to serve in that way, give joyfully to the Lord. I'm going to pray. We'll worship. We'll dismiss you guys with you. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross. It's what saves us. Jesus, you tread the wine press alone for us. We look to you now. We love you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us.